0: Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS, routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. Common Health replaces under a single podcast: The Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, Jay Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for US leadership. This is The Common Health.
1: Hello and welcome to a new episode. I'm Catherine Bliss with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. Here today with Anuradha Gupta, President of Global Immunizations at the Sabin Vaccine Institute in Washington, DC. Prior to joining Sabin, Anuradha was the Deputy CEO of Gavi the Vaccine Alliance. And before that, she served in the Indian Administrative Service as Mission Director of the National Health Mission of India. And this during a period when the country was highly focused on polio eradication. She's joining me today to help unpack the latest data from the World Health Organization, UNICEF, National Estimates of Immunization Coverage, or WONIC data. And this report was released in mid-July, as it is every year. And this year's report in particular was really eagerly anticipated by people in the immunization and child health communities Because during the pandemic, immunization coverage had decreased in many regions, even as it had plateaued or stagnated in several areas even before 2020. And so there was a great deal of hope that this year's figures would begin to show some kind of recovery as as the world kind of moves beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. So what do the new numbers tell us about the state of recovery and prospects for new future immunization trends? Let's dive in. Honorado, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Gatrin. Thanks uh, for inviting me.
1: So the new winning data that came out earlier this month really shows that immunizations reached 4 million more children in 2022 compared to 2021. And this suggests that countries are indeed starting to recover from the decreases that we saw during the pandemic. But while this seems like good news, those overall global numbers may be masking some pretty stark variations between countries and and even within countries themselves. So I want to start by asking you what the numbers tell you, what the new numbers in this new report tell you, and why it's important that we look beyond population covered to really understand regional and subnational differences and go beyond kind of the global scene.
2: Katyn, thank you for that very thoughtful question. Well, my first thought after looking at Munich estimates was that we must work harder, faster, and together, you know, and also much better. Why do I say that? Because, yes, if you look at the macro data, then you do see recovery compared to 2021, right? So we are looking at 22 data now, So, but Munich estimates are always dated. You know, so 22, but compared to 21, of course, there is recovery at the macro level. But if you dig deeper, then there are two things which become very evident. One is that we are still not back to 2019 uh, coverage levels, that pre-pandemic levels, right? So in 2022 now, about 20.5 million children did not receive their third dose of a DTP, which is a proxy indicator for access to immunization. But in 2019, that number was much lower, 18.4. So clearly, 2 million more children compared to 2019 haven't received even the full course of the most basic DTP vaccine. Likewise, if you look at zero-dose children, That is the first dose of uh, DTP. Of course, there is improvement, you know, in 2022 compared to 2021, but we are still not back to 2019 level of zero-dose children. So in 2019, we had 12.9 million million zero-dose children globally who had not received even a single DTP vaccine shot. But in uh, 2022, this number is 14.3 million. So, so really a, a worrisome picture. Now, the second important thing to understand about this data is that progress is highly uneven across uh, countries. And when we are looking at this reduction in, in the number of zero-dose children or improvement in dtp 3 coverage, there are a handful of countries that have driven that progress. So when you look at zero-dose children, then it is India alone that is a major contributor and has, you know, sort of impacted the overall uh, picture by reducing 1.6 million zero-dose children in a single year. And of course, then there is Indonesia, which also was able to reduce by 600,000. So in all, there are nine countries that are upper-middle-income countries that include, of course, Pakistan and Brazil, Mexico. Philippines, Myanmar, you know, and these have always been well-performing countries, I would say, with reasonably good health systems. So clearly we see that um, after the pressure for COVID-19 vaccination eased in these countries, you know, they bounced back much, much faster to pre-pandemic levels of coverage. But outside these countries, if you look at low-income countries, overall, there is a 5% points are declined in coverage compared to 2019 levels. And there are 34 countries that have either stagnated or are showing declining trends. So I think as you rightly said, it is important not to just look at the macro picture and the recovery that is showing, which as I said, is not good enough, but also dig deeper and, and dissect this data across countries, but also within countries, you know, to zoom in on subnational disparities, because wherever you know, there is an accumulation of unvaccinated or undervaccinated children, there are bound to be an increase in the number of disease outbreaks that we had already seen.
1: Anuradha, if I could, I wanted to, to go back and just clarify for our listeners. So when we talk about DTP, that's diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis which is given typically three doses in the child's first and second year of life, right? And so if a child is missing the third dose, that suggests that perhaps they had contact with the health system at some point for the first two doses. But if they're missing all doses, they're not only missing vaccines, but they're probably missing
2: many other health services as well. Absolutely. This uh, vaccine for diphtheria, tetanus, and produces is actually the most basic vaccine. And this has the highest reach. But therefore, no other vaccine has equivalent reach to the DTP. That is why it is taken as a proxy indicator for access to immunization services. But as you rightly said, you know, this vaccine has three doses, you know, and those children who drop out after taking the first dose, but before taking their third dose, those are children who are actually under vaccinated. So that means they might have taken their one dose or two doses, but they are still insufficiently protected against not just DTP, but a host of other diseases. Because if they haven't received the third dose of vaccine, sure enough, they haven't received other vaccines. But what is even more important here to note is that those children who do not receive a third dose of DTP or do not complete their course of DTP, two thirds of them or more than two thirds of them are really zero dose. That means they haven't even received their first dose of DTP. DTP-3 was the measure, right, to count children who were accessing immunization services. But as you you are aware, I sort of created this concept of zero-dose children uh, when I realized that bulk of those children had no contact whatsoever with immunization services. And when we started to dig deeper, we realized that these zero-dose children who were not receiving even their first dose of this BTP actually lived in households that are extremely poor. So two-thirds of these zero-dose children lived in households that subsist on less than $1.90 per day, which is the international definition for extreme poverty. But we also established that the mothers of these zero-dose children often do not have access to skilled birth attendance, antenatal care, contraception, and other services. And these households often lack access to water, sanitation, hygiene, nutrition. Children are not in school. So typically, therefore, zero-dose children are symbols and markers of multiple deprivations. And they can be a highly effective entry point, not just for vaccination services, but a host of other essential services that these communities and households require.
1: So I wanted to pick up a a point that you made earlier, which is that in the sense that we did see the numbers of zero dose children, you know, in the places where we saw those numbers go down, it was really in very high population countries like India or Indonesia, where, you know, really, you know, reaching 1.6 million children makes a big dent in the overall global numbers. But we've still got a number of countries, particularly low income countries, where not only those children, but entire families or communities are not being reached. Could you say a bit about I guess it's not quite a paradox but you know where you know we're seeing progress reaching you know many communities on the one hand but there are still significant pockets of families where you know for a variety of reasons whether conflict or population growth or just inaccessibility you know we're really
2: seeing a continuation of this ongoing challenge. So that's a brilliant question Catherine because as you rightly pointed out There are about 10 large countries that account for more than 70% of zero-dose children, right? That's because they have a very large birth cohort to be vaccinated every year. For example, India has an annual birth cohort of 26 million children. So every year, 26 million babies are born in India, and despite a very high vaccination coverage rate, they still had about 2.7 million zero-dose children, right? And this time it's looking much better when they have been able to reach 1.6 million in 2022 out of the 2.7 million. But uh, then on the other hand, we also have countries which have very high proportions of zero-dose children. And uh, let me give you some examples. For example, PNG, you know Papua New Guinea, actually has more than sixty percent children who remain deprived of even the first dose of TTP, so they are zero dose. Somalia, CAR, you know Central Africa Republic, Haiti, South Sudan. So these are really countries uh, which suffer from fragility, including active armed uh, conflicts, political instability, uh, displacement, migration, and therefore you really see that uh, approximately 50% of the, uh, the children in these countries are unvaccinated or under-vaccinated.
1: So we've been talking about DTP, the Diphtheria tetanus, pertussis, which you know, showed some kind of uptick or improvement, at least at the global level in 2022 with the 2023 data. But the wounding data shows that measles vaccination coverage has not recovered as well as other vaccines. Now, this is a two-dose regimen, right? That first-dose coverage, you know, I think rose to 83% from 81% in 2021, but the second-dose coverage is is not as high. And even when children get the first dose, they may miss the second dose altogether. So I wanted to ask you to say a little bit about, you know, what these numbers with respect to measles' second dose mean to you and why, you know, when we're seeing so many measles outbreaks this year compared to the previous couple of years of the pandemic, why is this a cause for concern?
2: Yeah, so first of all, measles, we call it the canary in the coal mine. Why is measles called canary in the cold mine? Because it is a highly infectious disease and and it doesn't remain hidden, right? So once you start to get a measles cases, and you have a large number of children who, who suffer from immunity gaps, that means they haven't received their measles vaccine, you would so see uh, children getting measles disease, right? So, so it's very visible, whereas diphtheria and tetanus would not be that first, that infectious, and that visible. So measles actually takes you into those households and communities, you know, where, where children are unvaccinated or, or under-vaccinated. Then measles kills children. You know, particularly those children who are immunocompromised, you know, it takes a heavy toll. I think an important thing to keep in mind is that if DTP is not reaching children, then measles cannot reach those children. You know, so as I said, DTP is the, always the first vaccine to reach communities. So clearly, you would always see uh, other vaccines like measles, pneumococcal, or Ruta, or several other polio. Polio is a different story because, you know, it is also given through campaigns and other strategies because of the polio eradication strategy. But if you look at other antigens, then they will always trail trail behind the DDP vaccine coverage. But a good trend that we had started to see in in the years prior to the pandemic was that measles vaccination coverage was actually almost at par with DTP coverage. And that was a very, very good sign. Why? Because DTP vaccine is actually given very, very early to an infant at six weeks, 10 weeks, 14 weeks, whereas the first dose of measles vaccine is administered when an infant is nine months. So therefore, you know, you really need a high level of commitment on the part of the caregivers, you know, to bring back their child uh, for vaccination, for measles vaccination, because there has been a gap, right, after 14, between 14 weeks and nine months. So that means, you know, parents have to actually remember the schedule, they have to uh, remember to bring back, then they also have to invest in that effort to bring back their child for measles vaccination. And that also, in a way, shows you know, the functionality of the health system that the health system is responsive, it is able to track those children who need to come back, you know, after a long gap for the measles vaccination. So really indicative of several things, you know, people's confidence, community trust, you know, and high attention to the value of uh, immunization, but also the functionality of the health system. But now to me, the most worrying thing that these unique estimates are showing is that the measles va- vaccination now is not at par with DTP vaccination. You know, in 2019, measles uh, first dose coverage was 86%, you know, which, which was quite high, which was equivalent to DTP, actually, and DTP3, and now it is 83%. So I do think that it is something which is very worrying. Why? Because first, there are many more children who are missing a measles vaccine. And second, as I said, if you accumulate children who haven't received their measles vaccine, then clearly the risk of measles outbreaks uh, grows, right? And we have already seen that in uh, 2021, there were about 125,000 measles cases globally, and in 2022, uh, it has crossed to 200,000. So, you know, so clearly you are seeing an increasing trend. And in poorer populations, where children suffer from compounded vulnerability, as I said, including nutritional deficiencies, you would see a spike in child mortality. Now, coming to the second dose of measles, Catherine, that's a slightly different challenge because not all countries have a second dose as a part of their regular schedule, right? So, in the beginning, the recommendation was only for one dose of measles vaccine, but then subsequently, another dose was added, so, so, countries are sort of introducing the second dose, but, you know, at a slow pace. During the pandemic, Yeah, actually, new vaccine introductions uh, really slowed down. When I looked at the data, I was happy that there about seven countries that actually introduced the second dose of measles in 2022, which means that countries are still thinking about this. But the coverage data that you would see for the second dose of measles would be impacted by two factors. One whether a country has second dose in the schedule or not, and many countries don't have, so therefore the coverage is lower. But the second also is that there, there is then dropout out. Because uh, the second dose of measles is given when a child is 18 months old. So after nine months, right, so for the first dose is at nine months and then 18 months, which really means then again, caregivers have to come back. And that's where you lose a lot of children in the up.
1: And so the measles vaccine, whether the first or and then the second dose, really can be an indicator of the health or resilience of the health system, because you've got those parents coming in at kind of irregular schedules to to bring the children for those vaccines. But it also, I mean, it sounds like from what you're saying, even, you know, with the decreases that we've seen in the measles first dose, even where it was before the pandemic, was not high enough at the recommended level of 95% coverage, I think, right?
2: So That is right. One of the challenges now that are fast emerging is that even in rich countries, we are seeing a decline in measles vaccination coverage. And this includes like countries like Netherlands, countries like Iceland, Ireland, UK, uh, Netherlands, and so many others, you know, where where you see a very clear a drop in uh, measles vaccination rates. And a lot of these countries now are below 95% uh, cutoff, uh, which is, which as you know, is essential for elimination of measles. That means a lot of these countries might actually see flare-up of uh, measles cases. And you might have noticed that there is a new warning that has come out of UK, where the modelers are suggesting that the UK could end up having a very large number of uh, measles cases in the near future, between 40,000 or 60,000, which is massive for a rich country. So absolutely a situation that needs very prompt attention.
1: What's driving these lower numbers, particularly in the high income countries that had, you know, at least before the pandemic, had fairly high, high numbers. You know, is it the misinformation and disinformation and just politicization
2: that we've seen over the past few years? Absolutely. So I do think that during the pandemic, this whole issue of disinformation, misinformation, and vaccine skepticism has become even more acute. And also one of the difficulties with a disease like measles is that in many of these countries, it is a disease of the past. Even the practitioners, right, medical practitioners, have not seen it, you know? And the is definitely haven't seen it, and the parents haven't seen measles or much of it. So therefore, you know, sometimes people in their minds could really be lulled into a delusion that this disease does not impact them, or is, is not, uh, probably doesn't exist. And I think that is why it is so important to invest in informing parents, caregivers, other gatekeepers, and really continuing to build and sustain high confidence in in vaccines. And I must say that in the past, the whole um, notion has been that if you have highly effective and safe vaccines and you offer them to a public, then people would just come forward and take them because it is for their own benefit. Uh, But I think now is the time for us to really understand that the journey from vaccines to vaccination is a very complex one. And when we are talking about vaccination, it is people's will and people's choices that matter. And those choices have to be informed with, with good data, with timely information, and really with humility and patience and willingness to respond to the valid questions that they would have and equipping all those providers or who they trust with that accurate, right, timely information.
1: Sounds like it really needs to be an ongoing effort, uh, a conversation and and really something that it's not just the information is provided and okay, that's great, let's move on, but something that that needs to be carried out on a routine basis. I wanna switch and talk a little bit about the HPV vaccine for human papillomavirus. The Winnick report this year had some good news about HPV vaccine coverage, which For the first time, you know, really coverage in countries that had introduced the HPV vaccine surpassed pre-pandemic levels. And, you know, in part, it sounds like this was because of some new introductions, which happened even over the course of the pandemic, which, as you pointed out, you know, was not easy during a period when people were afraid to go to clinics and, you know, afraid to, you know, be out in public in, in many cases. But, you know, it's important to point out at the same time, I mean, these numbers are still fairly low in high-income countries. It's just about 67 percent. So that's far lower than the the 90 percent goal uh, by 2030. But, you know, in the low and middle-income countries, the coverage is, is still a little bit lower than in 2019. At the same time, you know, we know that about 60 percent of the cervical cancer cases that are caused by HPV, you know, are really occurring in the countries that have not yet even introduced the HPV vaccine. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what you you see it will take to, you know, really reach 90% of those, you know, girls by the age of 15, by 2030. And that's part of the the goal of eliminating cervical cancer as a public health concern. You know, we've we've seen a lot of action this year There's the big catch up, you know, which is the overarching um, kind of global campaign to reignite um, immunization coverage. Gabi has initiated plans for, you know, really helping countries scale up their HPV vaccination. So
2: first of all, just a few facts, you know, to note. One is that when we are saying that 2022 numbers are equivalent to 2019 numbers, right, in countries that had already introduced. So you really compare apples with apples you know, the baseline was very low, right, in 2019. So in 106 countries that had their HPV vaccination program on in 2019, it was only 11.6 million girls who were reached with HPV vaccination. Even now, in 2022, that number remains unchanged. It is is the same number, 11.6 million in 106 countries. And of course, there are 24 more countries that introduced vaccine at some point. You know between 2019 to 2022 and therefore 1.6 million girls were additionally reached as, as a result of these introductory efforts. So a lot to be done on HPV, particularly because you know, cervical cancer cases are on the rise and, and deaths are on the rise. So in 1990, the death toll on account of cervical cancer was less than 185,000 a year And now it has crossed 340,000 young women dying every year. And the new infections have reached 600,000 every year, actually crossed 600,000. So it's a growing problem. You know, HPV infections, cervical cancer, deaths, particularly when women are in their primal fields. So really there is urgency around this. Now, what would it take, right? So I think there are a couple of things. One is that, as you rightly said, countries that haven't introduced the HPV vaccine, and they account for 60% of cervical cancer, right? And most of them are poor countries because 90% of cervical cancer-related deaths are in LMICs, basically because a specific incidence rates are very high in poorer countries and in poorer households, right, within countries. But also because cleaning and treatment facilities for precancerous lesions are almost non-existent in most of these. These countries are very inaccessible. For mostly for, for poorer households. So that is why you see such a heavy toll taken by cervical cancer. So I think that those countries that haven't introduced have to be supported in moving forward with introduction of the HPV vaccine. And it is easier said than done because for HPV vaccination, which is not a childhood vaccination, I mean, it's not a traditional childhood vaccine. So you are actually looking at nine-year-old girl and there are numbers, of new issues, so many of those girls are in schools, but a lot of them in many countries are also out of school, right? And there is this whole issue of parental consent, and then it is a sexually transmitted disease, and therefore messaging around this is also very complicated. And on the basis of some of the work that Sabine has done, and some other organizations like Heidi Larson and and others have carried out, it is also becoming very clear that a girls only vaccination strategy also has a, its own disadvantages in terms of perceptions about this vaccine, where a lot of parents are afraid that this vaccine is going to encourage their girls into sexual activity prematurely. So I think we should just understand that there are a host of issues around that. But then there are also issues of political will and financing, right? So one is that we, we've seen that the political will around vaccines and vaccination is varies, varies a great deal from very high commitment to really scepticism. So I think that's one issue to be dealt with, because we know that in the absence of political will, we cannot make any headway with either introductions or improved uptake of this very effective and important vaccine. And the second issue is the sustainable financing, right? So this vaccine requires higher investments and on a sustained basis, because the delivery strategies for this vaccine are going to be very bespoke. You know, you might need school-based campaigns, for example, for girls who are in school, but you also need uh, a special strategy for girls who are out of school. And then, as I said, there are higher investments needed in order to bring community on board, right? Which really, means that you work with a variety of influencers and gatekeepers, which wasn't the case so much with with other vaccines. So therefore, I think all those issues around introduction, which would include political commitment and and resource planning, then come to another set of issues about the uptake. So what we've seen is that in those countries, as, as I said, almost 130 countries that have HPV vaccination in this schedule, But they're struggling with uptake and improved coverage. And that's where we have to dig deeper. And receiving now is launching a global HPV consortium. This will be launched in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur on 5th of September, Sabin is leading this consortium and would act as its secretariat. And that consortium is actually informed by this new approach that we think would be required going forward. So what are the unique elements of this approach? First is that we have to make whole greater than the sum of its parts. So we have to really bring a lot of diverse actors and institutions on board together. We have to work together. So this consortium uh, pulls together public, private sector entities, right, civil society organizations, but also more importantly, youth groups because we are adolescent and youth groups. And I really think that can sort of give us a, a, an incredible advantage because we are again in the game hearing from adolescents that nothing about them should be without them. And I think if we are able to channelize their energy in a variety of constructive ways, right, they can actually become ambassadors and champions. And we also know that in Africa and Asia, the number of young people is actually growing 1.8 billion adolescents and young people. Our consortium is going to focus a great deal on harnessing the untapped power and potential of adolescents and youth groups. And of course, then they become ambassadors and champions for not just this vaccine, but also figuring out how HPV vaccination uh, can become a rallying point for a lot of integration of other services, whether it is mental health or substance abuse, self-harm injuries or reproductive sexual health, high risk factors for non-communicable diseases, you know, such as lack of activity or nutritional imbalance or dietary disorders, et cetera. So I think that's that's one Then another important constituency is really the women groups. So what we've realized during our work is that there is a lot of potential in leveraging non-health platforms, right? Which are bringing women together, particularly livelihoods. We are seeing that in increasing number of countries, actually women are coming together for income generating activities or for livelihoods, right? For example, in India, we have this whole national livelihood mission under which you have millions of women's health groups, right? That are being nurtured, developed, and which are very active and agile. You have SEWA, right? Which is India's largest trade union of poor women with 2.5 million women membership. And across countries, you are seeing these kinds of entrepreneurial Uh, women groups, right? And these women actually uh, appreciate the importance of preserving health as their biggest asset. And whenever I have spoken to these women, I have been so uh, impressed by one thing, by the one common message, saying we understand health is our biggest asset and whenever we fall sick or any of our family members fall sick, we will use our income, you know, we get into this whole vicious cycle of catastrophic medical expenditure and deeper poverty. This kind of energy is something that we can tap into. So, and the consortium will do that, but I think what generally we need to just understand the power of this. Then the last thing I would say is integration. So in health, we have been talking a lot about integration, but you know that we have had real challenges around actually implementing that that ambition. But HPV really gives us that entry point because uh, HPV and HIV, for example, have a very close connection. We know that women living with HIV have a higher risk of HPV infection and cervical cancer. So really working with HIV community, working with non-communicable diseases community, working with cancer control groups, because, you know, here is a cancer that can actually be prevented. We've spoke to uh, cancer control groups, they were so elated, they said, you know, they feel that at least there are two cancers, cervical cancer and of course liver cancer. You know, that can be prevented through vaccines. There is something that is not true in the case of other cancers. Then the last thing I would say is really creating a global to local movement. Because a lot of times, all this ambition and all these targets are set at the global level, right? But action has to happen at the grassroots level, at the local level. We really connecting that global level ambition with local level action and initiative is what needs to happen. So in this consortium, we are actually sort of very focused on creating a global to local movement where we are saying global momentum is, of course, important, but then regional, national, subnational, and local level momentum and action. And so
1: it sounds like you're really bringing together public sector, private sector, civil society with a huge focus. Not just on cancer advocates and women's groups, but also youth, boys and girls, and really trying to raise awareness, but also, I guess, activism for greater investments on the part of local and national governments and really trying to to move that agenda forward, both through the health system, but also schools and other areas as well. Well, I want to kind of try to look ahead to maybe the next Winner report that should come out in mid-July of next year. Obviously, that one will be taking into account the data that is gathered you know, over the course of 2023 and up through, I guess, the first few months of 2024. But, you know, let me ask you to reflect a little bit on, you know, we've talked about some of the positive information that's come out of this year, but also, you know, the importance of really looking at the nuance and at subnational level. But when you think about the current data, what are you really most optimistic about, you know, with respect to, you know, what you've seen from 2022? And what, in the next year, are you really hoping that you'll see progress on as we look at this data again in July of 2024?
2: Yeah, for me, the best message coming out of uh, the unique estimates is one of hope, right? That progress is possible. So we talked about progress in some large countries, right, where there has been high political commitment. So, for example, a country like India did 2 billion plus COVID-19 inoculations. And of course, during that time, you know, the zero-dose children population increased in India, but they got back to it pretty swiftly. And we saw that. and We saw in Pakistan, right, even during pandemic, they were able to hold steady and did not allow accumulation of zero-dose children and actually try to integrate COVID-19 vaccination and routine immunization services. So I think we have very good examples of how countries are able to provide very effective leadership, both at the political level, but also at the technical level. So in some cases, we have seen political leadership stepping up to the plate and leading from the front. But in some other cases, we have seen very strong technical leadership where regardless of political changes, you know, political instability, technical leadership has held steady and we have seen very good results. So I think that's a very good sign. And that gives me a lot of hope. And then the second, I think even better this thing is that there are some really low income countries, right? That have a very acute health system capacity related challenges. And because of their sheer grit and determination, they have continued to make progress even during the pandemic years. And even now in 2022, they have maintained that upward trajectory. And I'm very proud to share two examples with you, Catherine, of Chad and Niger, right? And I remember visiting Chad. So, Chad was one of the most challenging countries in Gavi portfolio when I took over uh, at Gavi. And then as I was crafting a strategy, you know, for countries and appreciating the heterogeneity and trying to say, okay, what are the countries that are extremely fragile or, you know, very important from impact perspective, Chad was one country that I chose for special attention. So I actually led the high level alliance mission to Chad and then met with the president of Chad, you know, who was a very uh, sort of long serving president, unfortunately more and the finance minister, the health minister. And when I met with the president, I think it was truly a very inspirational conversation. You know, when I sort of started my conversation to understand what is it that we could do differently or better, you know, to support Chad, he got very emotional. And he said to me, you are the first person who's ever asked me that. Otherwise, people just come and tell us what to do you know, without trying to understand our local context. And they this whole issue about nomadic populations, right? Where in Chad, they had 2% vaccination coverage for children in those nomadic communities. And as we started to sort of strategize around the local challenges, we then came up with this whole idea of co-delivery of services, right? So bringing livestock vaccination and children vaccination together. Because for those nomadic populations, their livestock is their primary means of subsistence. So that's very important to them, right? And the livestock vaccination rates were quite high among nomadic populations. So it was really co-delivering, you know, livestock. But we supported them in, in organizing this whole co-delivery and, and several other things, right? Whatever support they needed. And from 41% coverage, 2022 is 60% coverage. And there hasn't been a single year, Catherine, where they have looked back. And their zero dose DTP 1 coverage is, is so high, it is about 76%. And this systematically reduced the number of their zero dose children. Likewise, with Niger, where conversations with the president, and the president was just so embracing of this whole notion of providing leadership to the immunization program. And same with the Chad president, where he started to undertake regular immunization reviews. And so similarly, in Nigeria, we have seen steady progress, steady progress and a dramatic reduction in the number of zero dose children. So to me, that is the biggest message coming out of Unity. Whether a country is poor or a country has a large population, progress is possible, right, where there is political or or technical leadership. And they know then how to surmount, including health systems challenges. What is it that we should look forward to? I'm hoping that, that there would be acceleration of recovery that has to happen. And I'm hoping that this coming decade would be better than the decade that we even had before the nine years, before the pandemic, where we just saw three percentage point improvement in coverage in nine years. So I... I'm really hoping that we stop now looking back towards recovery, but really start to look ahead towards our year 2030 targets. Because all of us have really shaped them with such great uh, passion and zeal and dedication.
1: Well, Hanurata Gupta, president of Global Immunization at Satan Vaccine Institute. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today and really explain many of the findings and nuances of the latest WUNIC data on estimates of national immunization coverage you've really underscored the importance of really looking at data not just at the global level but you know really looking at how communities themselves are are faring you know within that larger context and the importance of political will sustainable financing and really working across multiple sectors the private sector civil society youth organizations and, and advocacy groups really to bring together an integrated package of services to meet people and serve their needs. So I look forward to keeping track of the coverage and, and the data as it comes out for next year and that we can continue the conversation as more information about immunizations unfolds. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Catherine. Thanks a lot for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit CSIS.org.